Yeah, welcome to uh, the season finale of the Campfire Conversation here at Laws. Um, this here. is considered the Rack House, is that correct, Simon? Yes, indeed. Rack House, awesome. Rack and House, Rick House. I've heard both terms used before, um, so we can call it both today. Do you um, get Rick Rolled in a Rick House? <laughs> if you're uh, not watching out. <laughs> well, welcome, everyone. We got two new uh, friends um, on this podcast today, and... Um, We'll go ahead and, and do some introductions in a minute, but I, I kind of wanted to just start with a little bit of, like a little bit of a mini monologue about where this podcast has come and kind of how we got here, uh, seven episodes into this uh, first season, which we are calling as our, um, yeah, our finale. So uh, today, and I think in general, I wanted to talk a lot about not just whiskey itself. Of course, we will. We're in an awesome place to do that, but kind of the ideas of like passion and creativity. Um, and so for those who've listened throughout the season, this story may not be necessarily like, new for you, but I think I was reflecting on that a lot in the last few uh, weeks uh, as I kind of you know, reflect on my own trajectory to get to this place and, and my gratitude for being able to kind of get a podcast off the ground. But it was about five years ago that this idea kind of was sparked going through some big transitions in life. And um, I was with a lot of friends at the time and thinking through you know, ways to process and express, you know, feelings, emotions in a creative way. And uh, a podcast idea kind of popped into my head uh, as I was, you know, camping and with friends and oftentimes drinking whiskey as a way to maybe bring and elevate ideas that I think initially in Crystal, our, our first female guest on the podcast, snap it up for that, Thank you. Um, was initially just guys, like guys sitting around at, at that point. My male friend group is really important to me to kind of help process things. And it did not happen for five years. Five years later, uh, shout out to my good friend Jamel, who's on the, of course, on this podcast with me. Uh, he invited me to his other podcast, Washed, at um, Spangling Brewery, and they were doing a live event. And I watched it. It was a lot of fun. And I left and I said, hey, I got to do this podcast idea. It's been sitting around too long. You only live once. And I feel like in my current work, I was not always expressing kind of the creative side of what um, was important to me. And so um, the idea was sparked within a month. We got our first podcast off the ground. And every three or four weeks since then, we've been able to do it. And so um, a lot of gratitude for being here. And I wanted to kind of use uh, my own reflections and getting to this place around passion and creativity to talk to both Simon, Crystal, and Jamel uh, not only about the whiskey that we're surrounded by in this place, but also just kind of their stories of how they got into uh, a place of kind of art artistry and, and creativity. So uh, kind of a full circle reflection to start our podcast today. Uh, thankful for uh, everyone's kind of willingness to make this work and uh, flexibility today. A shout out to our good friend, Criselda, who is unfortunately unable to make today's podcast. Uh, she was one of the big reasons we're here. And also to, to Mark, uh, Mark is no longer with Laws, but uh, was another uh, big part of how we got here. And so, um, full circle, thank you all for being here. And I kind of wanted to start with some introductions. So to, um, well, I guess viewers, we don't usually like, we're not like live, it's not like a live feed, so we won't probably put this part in the clip. But to my right um, is Simon. So Simon, do you want to share a little bit about kind of who you are, uh, what your role at Laws is, uh, your various roles professionally, and I guess... My last part of that introduction is, is whiskey your primary job? Um, well, uh, let's start from the beginning. Then. <laughs> yeah. My name is yeah, Simon Vasquez. Um, I'm the key accounts manager here at Laws Whiskey, but okay. I've held um, many different roles in my uh, journey into this uh, fine organization. I've been with the company almost six years, actually. Okay. My uh, sixth anniversary will, will be uh, February 1st. Congratulations. But, um, yeah, nice job, man. Here I am six years later uh, working. I manage the sales responsibilities for the entire state along with um, our Colorado State Manager, James. And, um, you know, I do a lot of traveling, a lot of education. Uh, I would consider whiskey to be my job. Nice. Awesome. Thanks for capturing that three-part question without needing a follow-up. That was... As a teacher and educator, that's not best practice. I was going to say, shout out to Josh for just setting you yeah. up like that. Uh, yeah, I mean. that was a big one. So, Crystal, part by part, your name? Go for it. Oh. I just told yeah. you, actually. <laughs> this Crystal is Crystal, Crystal here. Crystal Barrios. Thank you very much. Actually, I should go by my new name, Crystal McCartney. So oh, is there married. a wedding yes. in the recent? Oh. Just got married. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's a cool fact as well. So, uh, Crystal, what are the role or roles you hold here at Laws? 
Yep, so I am tasting room manager and event coordinator for the entire company. So I manage okay. all of the brand ambassadors, train them in the tasting room, um, the tourism side of things, and then working on events as well. Awesome. And is whiskey your primary job? It is. Whiskey is my career. Fantastic. Um, thank so you, you can get drunk for a living. I can. Yes. <laughs> I do a lot of drinking so that I can be <laughs> educated. That's yes, right. me too. That's what I tell all the people at the school. <laughs> of course. So Jamel, go ahead and, uh, you know, first time listeners can, can get to know you as well. But your name? Oh, my name is Jamel. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Uh, your various roles. What are the various roles? Professionally, personally? I was going to say in life? Um, yeah, put them all, man. Put them all. I, I'm that guy. I'll just say that. Jamel is a man, uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? A renaissance man. Uh, master of none. A man of many hats. <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. So what are some of those um, things that you don't have a lot of mastery of, but you do a lot of? Um, <laughs> drinking. Uh, amateur, One of his roles. Amateur comedian. Uh, <laughs> we also have a podcast. Shout out to Wash Podcast. Right on. Um, also, I've uh, somehow wound up into the school system, and they trust me around kids. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, this is uh, year 15? 16. You're 16. Yeah. That's and, and Jamel and I, for those who, who didn't know this, we worked together for a few years um, supporting children, um, I think, on title, uh, hopefully in reality. But um, we, 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 sh we shared this office, just as a side note, we shared an office that was not an office. It was like a backroom closet. It was not unlike where we're sitting right, right. now. Right. I mean, this is nicer because there's like there's ceiling lights. and there's lights. It yeah. probably didn't smell nearly as good. No, no it, definitely. it was a lot of teenagers, small, like, middle school-aged teenagers, and then two of us, like 40% of our leadership team was pushed into this office upstairs. But I assumed uh, my value was greater than it was uh, upon saying that out loud, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Hey, yes, no, upon Jamel, Josh, how about you guys go take that <laughs> closet upstairs? How about you guys, guys take the kids we don't want and <laughs> hang out in a closet for eight <laughs> hours a day? Yeah, we did. We did. We, we had a great time. Uh, so, yeah, Jamel in education. Also, firearms instructor. Yep. Yeah. Hence the shirt or Hence the hoodie. The and the hoodie. Um, Jamel truly does have a ton of podcaster, um, Instagram influencer, and just a good dude. So, yeah, thank you. Jamel has been part of pretty much the entire first season. So, this podcast truly is, is rounded out fully because of him. Um, is whiskey your primary job? No, unfortunately. <laughs> not. It's not. Um, all right, mine, yeah, Josh Hugo, uh, I work in schools, uh, do a podcast on the side, dad of a couple kids. Um, whiskey is not my primary job, but um, certainly I've found ways to incorporate it into my daily my, life. My life. Um, not my daily life. <laughs> I've been really, so just as a side note, um, I've been doing a strategic dry January. Oh. Obviously not today. It's uh, a weekend-based dry January where unless it's an occasion, which would make two occasions in two weeks, in which I don't limit it to a drink. Um, uh, otherwise, I'm trying to, you know, keep so it. So you're really not doing it. It's not really. It's a dry <laughs> January. It's yeah, a damp, a damp January. You, you <laughs> damp are just January. living your normal life is what it sounds like. It sounds like it. But, you know, I, a, little, a little bit more discipline. Hey, I'm doing dry January, except for I'm drinking on the weekends and when I'm hanging out with friends and then maybe on Tuesdays and sometimes on Thursdays as well. Well, it depends if there's like a football game on. So it's damp, but hey, you know, thanks for the support. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, so uh, listeners will see this. Um, I got to figure out this mic a little bit. I'm kind of like leaning. Like I don't think listeners over. will see this. See, no, they won't. Well, listeners won't see this. We've got more viewers than listeners. We do, mm. yeah. We've been figuring out Instagram. Yeah. Yes. Captions. Shout out to the tens of people yeah, I mean, that watched this. Yeah, no, hey, we got the last clip. We had, what, 3,000 3, uh, interactions with it. So You're we're moving welcome. up. Hey, someday, you know, I can legitimately say I'm working on the branding side of things. Until we, then. we are in the thousand air. Yeah, we're thousands. Yeah. So, but for those who are watching this, who are listening, um, the listeners won't see it, and the watchers will hear it and see it. But behind us is a bunch of barrels. In front of us is a bunch of barrels. Crystal, can you tell us a little bit about where we are? Um, we'd love to learn a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So we are in our barrel warehouse, which is not normally open to the public. Mm -hmm. um, so a little special opening it up for you all today. Nice. Um, Thank we're you. surrounded, absolutely, surrounded by about 4,000 barrels that are all aging. Um, we make bourbon, rye, wheat whiskey, and barley whiskey. So we're surrounded by all of those different types of whiskeys. Mm. Um, 
And this is where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of science in distillation, and then there's a lot of art form. And so this is the creative side to it to kind of tie it into everything that you're speaking about. So we can do all the science and make the spirit, and then once you put it into the barrel, that's where the barrel really imparts its own ideas, thoughts, mm -hmm. personality, things like that. So all of these barrels are living, breathing, porous creatures that are helping us make the end product that is going to end up in our glass. So you said this is where the magic happens, so this would be considered like the bedroom of the distillation? <laughs> uh, I like that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think this could be the, be the, the big bed, the master bedroom. The, be the master bedroom. Master sure. bedroom. The big bedroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and real quick, before we get a little further, I have a question. Yeah, please. Rick House is obviously where the, the whiskey comes to age, right? Mm -hmm. So the when you're making the whiskey, the distillation of it, where does that take place? Yes, so that actually does happen at our distillery, which fortunately is open to the public. Yes. Um, shout out to lawswhiskeyhouse.com. Right. Um, but that's where we do tours. So we take you on an educational journey, teach you not only about our product and our history, but the greater history of bourbon and of whiskey in general. Um, and then we'll show you the production side of things over there, which has the spill, has the ferments, um, all of the parts that we need in order to make the finished product um, before it goes into the barrel. Thanks, Crystal. Um, appreciate kind of the background and kind of the visuals. And for those who, who well, everyone who's watching only sees our faces, um, you're welcome. But the, the I mean, we're looking at, um, I mean, how many square footage is this place here, Simon? Do you know that? So this uh, entire building is about 30,000 square feet. It houses our offices up front, but okay. um, a good probably eighteen to 20,000 is devoted just to barrel storage. We also have our uh, packaging line. Okay. Uh, that is a whole another section of this warehouse. So well. you do the bottling here as well? Correct. Everything oh, is so all hand-bottled and labeled. Wow. So si oh, go ahead, Jim. Sorry, how long? And this, I, I do this all the time. I'm, I digress a lot. No, um, it's, it's great. How long does it take to bottle a batch? Like you said, this is done by hand, right? So like, Ooh. well, um, depending on the batch size too. You know, we started doing. Um, you know, we're in year, in the middle of year thirteen of uh, distillation, which means that we have you know over four thousand barrels here in this room. We also have another separate facility in Aurora where we have another thousand or so barrels. We've started taking bigger and bigger batches, um, especially for our flagship four gram bourbon. Um, one of the things that we've been doing for the last couple batches on the four grain is incorporating over 100 different 53 gallon barrels into the batch. Oh, um, sweet. Is yeah. that what that thing is? That is actually something completely different. We can touch on that a little later yeah, on. Yeah, we'll come back want. to that one then. But, okay. um, quit interrupting here, guys. Jeez. Oh, I know, my, my bad. Sounds like. Much to see. Yeah, I know. Um, we have, uh, historically, we were taking, you know, 30, 50 barrels per batch to make our four grain. Um, you know, the goal for us is to be consistent across batches, but also to improve upon our batches every time. Um, we want our four grain bourbon to taste like four grain bourbon. Mm -hmm. um, it tastes like Law's four grain bourbon. Mm -hmm. Now, we have had the opportunity in recent uh, batches of the past year, namely, to um, incorporate some of our older whiskey into the batches. So typically, we do three to four years on our barrels. Um, a minimum three years of age. Okay. That way we can put it on the bottle and on the label saying this is spent, all of this is spent at least three years in the barrel. What we started doing too is uh, layering in some 10 year plus whiskey. So um, whiskey that's really had a good amount of time to really pick up a lot more of that barrel character and we started layering it into our four grain to just give it a little more depth, a little more flavor, a little more character. Um, so um, hand bottling over 100 barrels that can be kind of a chore. You know, we've got a massive vessel that holds all that whiskey after it's been proofed down to 95 proof. Um, so that can take anywhere from, you know, a week to three or four weeks, depending on the batch size. Well, you know what they say. No. Batches be tripping. Batches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Batches so be tripling. Yeah, our, our, <laughs> our pun count is pretty high um, on, these, on these. So if you feel like you're pretty good at puns, throw them in. Thanks, as always, Jamel. Um, and thanks for that uh, kind of explanation of, of, the ba of the bottling process. So I want to stick on a little bit of kind of just laws itself, and then I, I want to eventually get to like the tasting and a little bit more of this, the chemistry and the science of this. But one of the themes I think um, is today is a little bit of like the story. 
like the story of how laws came to existence, and then hopefully all of us can share a little bit more of the story of kind of our own creative interactions with this space. Um, either one, Crystal or Simon, either one of you could take this, but I want to hear a little bit more about Law's story, which I think is actually really a cool story about transition, uh, about kind of change based on kind of the founding story of this place. And, uh, you know, on, even on a personal level, I'm really fascinated at this moment in time with transition and change. Um, so maybe both of you can kind of um, work in harmony here to share the story of kind of where laws came from, because I think it's a really cool story. I think Crystal's uh, used to instructing people and, uh, you know, making sure that everyone's story is straight. So I think I'm going to defer to her on this one awesome. for the yeah, most Chris, part. Yeah, thanks. I mean, Crystal, tell us kind of the story. Thank you. Yeah, no, one of my greatest pleasures in life is sharing Al and Law's story. So he was born and raised in Alberta, Canada. Like any young, good Canadian boy, he was out there playing ice hockey, drinking whiskey, living his best life. <laughs> he grew up. He got a big boy job, and he worked on Wall Street. So he moved from Canada to New York. He did everything from ring the bell to make a lot of money. Um, and in his own words, it was a very soul-sucking career. Mm. Um, so during that time on Wall Street, he started collecting whiskey. Um, of course, that gave him the funds to uh, collect that habit. And he has what he calls a whiskey library in his home. Um, at one point in time, there were over 600 bottles of whiskey that were all open and readily shared with friends and family. We have all lived through a pandemic, so that has depleted, <laughs> but there are still hundreds of bottles that are yeah. open and readily shared with friends and family. Mm. Um, so like anybody who's going through changes in life or a quarter-life crisis or midlife crisis, you know, what do you do? You saunter down to your whiskey library, you pour yourself a dram of something nice, and you start asking yourself the important questions like, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? What could you possibly see yourself doing mm. for a second career that's rewarding if you're coming off of a career that you self-describe as soul-sucking? Mm. Um, and of course, all roads led him back to whiskey. And so at that time, he was considering opening a distillery in New York because he was living in New York. So fortunately for us, his company packed his and his family up and sent them out here to Denver, Colorado for a two-year assignment. So like anybody who comes to visit us for a weekend and quickly realizes how awesome Denver is, um, and they try to figure out how to move here, they were already set up for that. Sorry, so real quick, what's, what point, what year, what time was oh, this? Oh, this was in 2008? Nice. No, seven, right? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, Kay. somewhere right around in there um, that he was transferred out here. Okay. Um, so shortly after a few months of them being here, um, the family kind of came together, called a family meeting, was like, hey, we like it here. They were living in Brooklyn, New York before. So mm. at the time, his kids were teenagers. So they saw the opportunity to have cars. Mm. They had a house with a yard. They could finally have a dog and things like that. So the family decided they wanted to stay here. So Al kind of had to pivot. And instead of thinking after that two-year assignment they'd be going back to Brooklyn, it was, okay, well, could we possibly continue this plan here? So mm. fortunately, he found the place where we have our distillery, um, purchased that building, started doing necessary renovations to it, um, ordering the equipment, getting everything that he needed. And prior to that, him and his wife, Marianne, had taken a passion trip down to Kentucky, toured around. Mm. You know, he's a smart man, so he definitely knew how to drink whiskey, but didn't necessarily know how to make it. So part of that passion trip, he had to happen chance meeting with a gentleman named Bill Friel, who was a master distiller down in Kentucky for over 30 years. Um, and he was happily retired the day he met Alan Laws. And so Al is a very charismatic individual if you ever get the chance to have a conversation with We'd him. would love to, yeah. It's very obvious how we all are so passionate about this whiskey and about this brand, and it all trickles down from him. And so he met Bill, and it was supposed to be a quick 20-minute meeting. It turned into four and a half hours. At the end of that conversation, he successfully convinced Bill to come out of retirement, fly out here to Denver, Colorado, and teach him how to make whiskey. Wow. So as the story goes, Bill was a bit more of a core mentor than a mentor to Al. So he would follow him around on the production floor, and he'd go and look at a fermenter, and he'd be like, huh, that was my whiskey. I wouldn't want it doing that. And then he'd walk away. So then Al would come over and scramble and try to figure something out. And from Al, coming from the Wall Street side, He's comfortable with numbers. Mm -hmm. He's comfortable with formulas, right? Those things are safe. They're consistent. Mm -hmm. So that was his um, way of reacting to something that's 
inherently inconsistent. And of course, Bill, being old school Kentucky distiller, you know, almost kind of had to come and smack him on his hands and be like, stop it. The numbers aren't going to help you here. Mm. Your nose is going to help you. That's your right. palate, your mouth is going to help you. Like your sensory experience mm. is going to tell you if your whiskey is good or bad. So that was a key component that we still carry through to our brand to this day is that everything that we do is sensory based. Our distillers make, mm. you know, their cuts based off of using their sense of smell, their sense of taste. Um, there's always numbers that you can fall back on, but that's sort of like the art form. That's yeah. the creativity. That's the human element to distilling yeah. um, that we're really passionate about, and that comes from Al and his original journey doing it. That's, that's, awesome. that's, that's awesome. That is awesome. I'm curious how a, a guy from Canada and a guy from Kentucky like work together. It seems like it's an odd couple. It was a little <laughs> bit of an odd couple, yeah. So Al didn't tell Bill that his flagship product that he wanted to make was a four-grain straight bourbon. Mm. So Bill flies out here. He sits down. He tells him that. Bill almost got up and walked out of the room and was like, you're crazy. Like, that's a very hard thing to do. Mm. Why would you set out to make something so hard and want that to be your consistent flagship product? Interesting. So he almost tried to get him to do that as, like, a one-off thing. And Al was like, no, this so is what it's about. So For our listeners – Listeners who don't know as much about like the technical part, and I think we'll get to that a little bit more, but since you already brought it up, most bourbons in Kentucky, and let me make an inference here from my, from my limited knowledge, most bourbons in Kentucky are going to be a, more of a typical three grain, right? You're going to have corn, you might either have wheat and you'll have your uh, barley, or uh, you might throw in rye and wheat, or but it's typically three grains. Is that correct? Yep, 90% of whiskeys in the world are either two grains or three grains. Okay, so, yeah. so the four grain, um, we'll name it now, and then I want to actually break down that process in a few minutes. What are the four grains in this crystal? Yep, so we use the four heirloom grains, corn, wheat, rye, and malted barley. Okay. Is there such thing as a single grain whiskey? Yeah, so we have our rye whiskey, which we are tasting here uh, on the side. So that rye. is just 100% rye grain. So like that would rye, be rye. Can you make a whiskey from just corn? <laughs> uh, yep, you can, but typically you do need some kind of malted grain I for the conversion process with the enzymes. Mm. So if it is a predominantly corn whiskey, it has to be at least 81% corn. Mm. And then the rest of that mash bill could be a malted grain, like a malted wheat, a malted rye, or a okay. malted barley. And if it's less than, I believe, 5%, you don't actually have to list that you put it in there for your mash bill. Hmm. Um, but in the distilling process, which we will get to, mm -hmm. you're converting starches to sugars. And so in that chemistry process, we have to have a malted grain to aid in that. So one last question on that note. So say you can just make a wheat whiskey, then, right? Because you get the malted grain, right? So you yes. can just do just wheat whiskey. Yep. So for our recipes, for example, the rye or the wheat, it's going to be 50% raw grain and 50% malted grain. Oh. So when it's that okay. singular grain, it takes about half of it malted in order to do that enzyme conversion. Gotcha. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, the technical stuff. We've been trying to introduce little pieces in, in each of our shows, and this show is going to be by far the most technically. Oh, man. The in, I love the, the, I love the information. Drinking, it's amazing. So. It, it's awesome. Like, I, I think that's another reflection is, well, no. I'll speak for myself. I, I, well, I'll speak for Jamel, too. We know a little about a lot, but we don't know a lot about one specific thing, so it's awesome to have some real specificity. And, and real quick, I'm sorry, Simon, you said on the left is what and on the right is what? Oh, the left is going to be the four-grain bourbon. The right is going to be the San Luis Valley rye. Okay. So we've got that four-grain, which is going to be 60% corn, 20% wheat, 10% rye, and 10% barley. And then the right is that heirloom winter-grown rye, which is going to be just half malted, half raw. Um, we work okay. on one family farm that gets uh, grows all of the heirloom wheat, rye, and barley for us. So since we have single-origin grains, we really like to highlight those grains in their essence. Okay. So hence why we do also do a 100% wheat whiskey, um, which is typically our summer release, as well as a 100% barley, which we didn't do this year, but um, it'll be back. Awesome. We're going to do a tasting in a second. Simon, I want to push one more question to you about laws. Um, in kind of your estimation, like what, what makes the laws story like resonate with you? Like what, what drew you into laws specifically and what about its story kind of hits you where, where it keeps you here? Um, well, uh, you know, one of the main um, 
sayings that we like to go by around here is that there are no shortcuts. Mm. Um, and I think that, going back to what Crystal was reflecting on with Al's passion, I think that that passion is contagious. And the idea of seeing this process through to a T, really paying homage to the history of the process itself, but also um, innovating and you know figuring out how best it works for us to create something that's unique yet still falls within the category, um, has really uh, been quite rewarding to be a part of. Um, you know, I think one thing that we've been focusing a lot lately on is that Colorado um, Colorado whiskey is a young category. It is. People have it is. not been distilling here for very long. So um, something that we often have to, especially in the sales world and you know, being consumer-facing is... Um, really uh, dial in on the fact that we're not trying to be Kentucky bourbon. We're mm -hmm. using Colorado grains and Colorado water. We're using longstanding production techniques, but our goal is to showcase what we can do here. And, um, mm. you know, we're kind of following off the coattails of the brewing industry. I um, actually got into whiskey because I was a home brewer at first. Like, I started brewing beer with my dad right around when I turned 21 and found a passion for fermentation. And so seeing that this is also, you know, a process that involves not only fermentation, but then distillation, um, these two very, like, distinct scientific processes, um, we go back to that art and science marriage, too. This is, yeah. um, it's amazing to see what you can do when you are, you know, using this specific palette and working with amazing sourcing for grains and for water and just amazing minds all behind it. That's awesome. And you didn't start any of that home brewing a day before 21, correct? Not a single no, day before. Sir. Okay, very good. Yeah. Now, that's awesome. Um, and I didn't know that, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, too, because I do want to get into the process. I think we'll do some tasting here. I think we're thirsty. Um, I've been cheating a little bit. Um, Just a little this bit. Is, so my Jewish roots, um, uh, my mom is Jewish. Um, have any of you ever celebrated a Passover? Yes. Oh, okay. I married into a Jewish oh, family. Oh, so you know. So, so Elijah's glass is mm -hmm. you set a table at Passover for everyone, and then you leave a place setting open, including, um, you know, the plate and the, the wine. And throughout Passover, um, you, you have four different servings of wine um, and any other side glasses if you want. <laughs> yeah, so everyone's it's not pretty that good a wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust it's me. Manischewitz. It's not. Yeah. It's not <laughs> But one of the glasses is Elijah's glass, and as a kid, you kind of are, it's like a Santa Claus-ish sort of thing in the sense that there's a little mystery to how the wine disappears over the course of the night because Elijah, in theory, is the table setting for any guest to come into the house. This is, um, this looks like Elijah's glass because mine is almost gone, mm -hmm. but there's, there's no mystery as to why it's, it's, it's uh, somewhat uh, diminished. And so just to tagline off yeah, of that, please. we are a certified kosher distillery. Whoa, right on. There you go. Um, well, mazel tov. Mazel tov. Mazel tov to that. Um, so let's talk about Hello? our tasting. Is that so the right thing to say? Yeah. Mazel tov would be the toast, the kind of the, the Hebrew word for um, like good tidings. But um, so thank you for the story about Laws. We're at Laws Whiskey House, and uh, we kind of understand the story of, of how we got here. Wait, um, wait, real oh, quick before yeah, we get there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crystal didn't get a chance to answer the same question. I don't know if you were getting there or not. She gave us the first half, but if, Crystal, you want to add anything else to the Laws story before we break oh. into oh, no, the no, tasting. Or what, what, why are you so passionate about ah, that? Hey, thank you. Yes, I'd love to know that. Oh, like yeah. how, do you, how, do you, how does your, th your story tie into mm, the Laws story? Yes, why, why are you still here after, I don't know, X amount of years? Yeah, so I have Thank been you. a fan of the company since it started. So I love whiskey. I've been mm. a fan. Um, I love Law's Whiskey. And then I was a bartender, so I was selling Law's Whiskey. Um, of course, anybody coming in to Colorado, you hear about all of our beer. You hear about our food. You hear about our spirits. So there's a draw that, you know, out-of-town folks are like, what do you have that's local? What's cool that you have? So as a bartender, I would be pulling Law's off of the shelf and mm. selling it. Um, and then ended up getting older and not wanting to be a bartender as much anymore and have those late nights. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up switching entirely and then working on the bottling line, which was very early mornings and getting out by like four in the afternoon. Um, so that was my first introduction to laws mm -hmm. was coming here, trying to take a step out of bartending. At that time, I was still doing a bit of both. 
Um, and then my career progressed quite rapidly with laws. So it worked um, very fortuitous in my favor. But I started on the bottling line, which is basic entry-level manual labor for the company. Um, I maybe highlight it a bit more on the tours because I'm still passionate about it because it is done by humans. So, you know, hand-bottled, corked, labeled, sealed, everything is done by people. And I think that that's really important. And that was something Al did from the beginning. So even in the beginning, when he had the money to do it all automated, he didn't. And he's like, no, I want people to do it. I want to pay people. I want to keep people, you know, on staff to do that. So that was my first introduction to laws. They needed a brand ambassador in the tasting room one day a week. That position opened up. I applied for it. I got it. Um, still bartending at the same time. And then the manager of the tasting room um, retired and moved on from her job there. And so I asked if I could apply for her job, but only part of it. Because she did HR, and nobody wants to do HR. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to manage the tasting room, but yeah. not do the HR piece. Mm -hmm. So just to counter that so they didn't feel like they were hiring me nothing I was like but you don't do events here and I'm very passionate about events and so that's something that I can bring to the table mm. and so they had never even thought about selling the warehouse or doing a private event in here and in the six and a half almost seven years that I've been with the company I have done more events in this barrel warehouse than I can count so that's really my creative flex and that's really where I shine mm. I love the organization of an event I love seeing it through seeing all the people happy at mm -hmm. the event um, I'm the self-proclaimed people person of the company, so I like dealing with the people, talking to the people, and again, sharing Al's story with everyone. Awesome. So yeah, that's thank that you. is thank sweet. you for that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so, I mean, one one comment going back um, to to Simon's reflection about the Colorado piece. One of the things that I think this podcast, I hope, can continue to evolve in is um, we've only really featured local local Colorado whiskeys. And I think that it, it's, in some reflection, when I came here 15 years ago to, I think, your point, Simon and, and, and Crystal, like there's a lot of brewery. Uh, the brewery vibe here in the late 2000s was big. And I got Jamel off of MGD and onto some local microbrews at the time. And, um, and that scene was a lot of fun. And then it got so big and it got so almost like over the top that, I mean, of course, I still like Colorado beers. But the, the distillery vibe, the distillery people, the distillery scene in Colorado has been so hospitable, so like, you know, creative and collaborative. I, you know, spent some time out at Fraser Valley, um, a number of different times out at Petrie Distilling out on the Western Slope and other places that I know technically are competitors, but there's also just like a cool spirit of like, we're all doing our own thing, but we're all kind of in the same game together. And so I think it's really cool to feature really good quality um, whiskeys from Colorado and they're accessible and they are available and I think that what we've seen a little bit with some of the the mainline brands out of some of the traditional places including in Kentucky is like you're you're driving around after trucks and trying to find a place to you know when they drop in a, in a liquor shop you're going to have to like hop in there and say all right I'll take one of these for four times the price and that's that's not the fun of the the hobby if you will it's not the fun of this game and so i really appreciate the colorado scene and i think laws is doing some of the best stuff in my opinion as far as everything i've had out here so um love to taste this stuff and you know i've i've tried to like translate my tasting experiences on our podcast prior to this but i'm gonna shut up and i yeah think <laughs> yeah um i would love to have uh, both simon and crystal lead us through the tasting process. Could I get topped off on that bourbon though? Because I don't know if I have enough to really taste it. Um, Crystal, you lead the tasting room. Yep. Simon, you you help people understand the products of both of you. I'd love for you to kind of walk us through a proper tasting here um, and uh, take it away. Hey yeah. Crystal, do you want bourbon or rye? I'll take bourbon. Okay, I'll do rye then. All right. All right perfect. Uh, so we are going to taste our four-grain straight bourbon. So this okay. is our flagship product. This is what you'll see most out for us, and then shortly followed by the rye. 60% okay. uh, corn, 20% wheat, 10% rye, 10% malted barley. Okay. Um, so anytime you're tasting a high-proof spirit, it's going to sound a little weird, but your nose is your friend. <coughs> Let your nose lead you, right? Okay. So your palate, your tongue can only taste five different things. We've all seen that tongue diagram. Hmm. Your nose can smell up to three trillion different smells based on your experiences in life. 
So anytime wow. I'm doing a tasting, and I do that with air quotes, I'm really letting my nose taste the whiskey first. So high proof spirit, always part your lips, breathe in through your mouth as well as your nose. Do this every single time. If you don't believe me, try smelling it with your mouth closed, yep. then try smelling it with Ooh. your mouth open. Yep. You see Big how difference, difference yeah. it is. So it's a high proof spirit, you're dispersing that across your entire palate by opening your mouth. So as you breathe in and you give it a couple good inhales, mm -hmm. you really almost sort of taste it on your palate without right. even taking a sip of it, and that's really your nose working with mm -hmm. your palate. So an interesting fact, one of my favorite things that I could take as a positive out of the crazy pandemic that we had um, is that it takes your nose and your taste buds working together to experience flavor. If you don't have sense of smell but you have sense of taste or vice versa, you will not experience flavor. Mm. So wow. I think that's a really interesting thing to remember when you're doing a tasting. So, of course, you all have been taking a few sips off of this, but mm -hmm. assuming if this was your first sip of High Proof Spirit for the day, you would like to acclimate. So I always tell people to take a tiny sip of whiskey, treat it like mouthwash, Kay. swish it around on your palate. Down in Kentucky, they call this the Kentucky Chew, mm. but I like to call this the Colorado mouthwash because I think we have really good oral hygiene here in Colorado. So yeah, when you do that mouthwash... And they don't in Kentucky. <laughs> 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 right? They're doing chew in Kentucky. So, um, so doing that rinse, okay. if you will, across your entire palate is going to activate all those portions of okay. your tongue, right? So yeah. you will okay. start to have a physiological reaction. Your tongue might start to get a little watery, like your gums might be tingly, mm. your eyes might start to water, you might even let out a cough. That's a natural reaction to a high-proof spirit, but that's why you have to prime your palate before you can actually taste anything. Okay. So that very first sip is the sip that we lose 90% of people on in the whiskey world. They take that acclimation sip, and then they think that that's how whiskey tastes. Ah. But you all know the further you go, the different notes that come out, the different flavor profiles that come out. So after you've acclimated, now you're able to judge. So if you take a second sip mm -hmm. of that bourbon, now, and I've already acclimated. Do you think while, you, while you're taking that sip, do you think shots are the undoing of the liquor industry early on? Because everyone in college, like they're at their first experience with liquor. I wouldn't say undoing, that's dramatic. But like the first, yeah. right, it's still profitable. But like it's when everyone's first experiences ending. with a shot, it's like, oh man, that was so, like it's the first taste and the last taste. Yeah. So it's definitely a different end game, right? Like right. if you're drinking to get drunk, kick that whiskey back, right? Mm -hmm. There's no right or wrong way to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Right. If you're trying to explore different styles yes. of whiskey, if you're trying to ta like taste a brand new bottle, we just had the holidays, you got gifted a bottle, you've never tasted this yep. before, you have zero um, recollection of what it's supposed to taste like, that's where you really want to dive in and Kay. do a tasting like this and really Kay. figure out what's in that bottle and then mm. kick it back as a shot. Pour it as your neat pour. Make a cocktail with yep. it. Figure out how best you want to enjoy that whiskey. Okay. And don't ever let anybody tell you there's a right or wrong way to drink whiskey. Okay. However you are drinking whiskey and enjoying it is the right way to do it. Okay. I don't care if you want to mix it with Mountain Dew. I don't care if you want to make a cocktail with it. I don't care if you want to be a purist and be like, I don't want anything else to touch okay. this. No ice, no water. There's different ways to enjoy it. And there's different ways to open it up and give you a different tasting experience. So, so what are we tasting in this four grain? Yeah, so well, we've done our we've me. done our Colorado mouthwash. Yeah. Now we're going in for a second sip. Second sip. So do this we is your still judgment do sip. like the nose and Absolutely, uh, mouth before because it? Because it's gonna smell different, and that's the beauty in this, especially with something like the four grain that's as dynamic as that. Even the most novice whiskey drinker can pick out something because you've got a lot going on in this glass. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what are y'all tasting? I get like. Absolutely. A little bit of vanilla. Yep. You yeah. both are tasting barrel notes. Yeah. So we make a straight product here at Law's Whiskey House. So it's five ingredients. Water, grain, yeast, and thyme in that barrel. That's mm. it. So when you're tasting a caramel or you're tasting a vanilla, that's not added to this. Those are molecular compounds found in the wood of the barrels. Mm. And then if you pull out a different tasting note, and I'm not going to prime you with it, but I can tell you that's a molecular compound found in the grains. So you're either tasting grain compounds or wood compounds predominantly. Mm. Of course, we use really good water, so that's definitely going to affect it as well. Mm. But those are what you're really tasting through 
um, when you're picking out these nuances of a whiskey. And there's no right or wrong answers. If you think about it, everything you're tasting or everything you're nosing is based on your experiences. Mm. So in a hypothetical world, if you had never tasted cinnamon before, right? And you've I never had an experience a little with it. Cinnamon here. I know, power of suggestion. Yeah. But if you've never had an experience with that, there's no way you would know what cinnamon smells like. Mm. There's no way you would know what cinnamon tastes like. So, so that's so why you have to train your palates. So if I was to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm tasting strawberry. Yes. Like, there's no strawberry in this. But I'm not. I'm just saying, like, yeah. isn't that, like, weird for somebody to be like, oh, yeah, I taste blueberries. Not necessarily. Hmm. Fruit notes are definitely a yeah. molecular compound coming from the barrel or possibly coming from the grain itself. So if you did taste a little bit of strawberry, I would tell you that's coming from the wheat grain. Hmm. So that kind of uh. gives us almost like a fruit note, like a marmalade. Um, or something like that. So, and it's all subjective. Gotcha. So that's the other part to it. Um, little known fact: your olfactories are directly tied to your limbic system, which is where your memories are stored. So when I teach people how to taste whiskey, if approaching it from the very direct, this is what it smells like, this is what it tastes like, isn't exactly working for you, close your eyes. Anytime you take away one of your senses, what are you doing? You're enhancing the others. So close your eyes, smell that whiskey, taste that whiskey. Now, y'all are campers, right? So again, yeah. power of suggestion, but you might smell this whiskey and be like, oh my God, do you remember that time we were camping? Do you remember when we were having those great stories around the campfire and we were just passing that bottle around? Like, this takes me right back to that campsite. Cool, you got there via a memory. I wasn't with you camping, so I'm gonna smell this glass and be like, oh, that smoky backbone, I get it. That's what you're picking up. So you got there via a memory. I got there via sensory. We both got to the same tasting note, but there's multiple ways to approach this to make it work for you. Shout out to Victor Oladipo or whatever you said. <laughs> <laughs> Olafactory. Ola. Your nose. Fancy word for your nose and how to smell. That's good. Yeah. Simon, what notes are you getting off of this. You know, if we're talking about uh, some uh, grain-forward notes, which Crystal is alluding to, we already talked a little bit about strawberry. Strawberry can sometimes be attributed to wheat. Well, let's get on to this uh, rye then. Yes. Yeah, let's All talk right. about this rye. So this rye is a very um, special thing for us. Now, Al and his wife Marianne are both Canadian natives. Uh, Al just recently got a citizenship here in the U.S. But What part of Canada, real quick? Uh, Alberta. Ah. Don't okay. you know? No, that's Minnesota. <laughs> well, it's kind of the same. It's oil country. Yeah. Um, ah. Now, if we didn't make a good rye whiskey, I would be very concerned because... Um, Canada's known for its rye. Known for some delightful rye. For its rye. I was um, going to say they're known for hockey, but well, maybe that's just... The two go hand in okay. hand. Canadian mist? Sorry, that's... Yeah. yeah, I don't know where you're <laughs> going with that. <laughs> but we digress. We digress. Yeah. We digress. <laughs> All right, so what we have here is a... So I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. We work with one family farm that grows all of our wheat, rye, and barley. We have another family farm out east that grows our, our corn. It's uh, here, right? Tissue supply in Burlington, Colorado. But our wheat, rye, and barley all are grown in Alamosa, Colorado. Alamosa, San Luis. San Luis Valley. Yeah. And our San Luis Valley rye. Now, Colorado Malting Company is run by the Cody Brothers. Um... These guys have been, um, I mean, their family's been in the uh, grain business for five generations. So wow. these guys started out as homestead farmers about 100 years ago. Hmm. Now, before then, uh, the San Luis Valley, which is a pretty unique landscape, um, you know, it's the largest alpine valley in the world. Um, it's at an average of about 7,200 feet in elevation uh, at the valley level where all the farming is done. Hmm making it a pretty cruel environment for grains. Um, yeah, it's and dry, whatever. it's harsh. It's hot during the day, it's yep. cold during the night. Um, you know, good water, but not great soil. Um, and just, and Simon, real briefly, just for our viewers who are not familiar with Colorado, what we're really talking about is we're going about two hours west of Denver, and you're going about an hour, hour and a half south mm -hmm of that centralized place. So we're talking about Buena Vista, about an hour south of it. Yep. Uh, Great Sand Dunes National Park is on mm -hmm. the eastern side of this valley, mm -hmm. all the way down to Wolf Creek on the southwest side up to the San Juan Mountains. Just a massive valley Huge. trapped between two mountain ranges that hold several 14,000 plus foot peaks. Shout out to um, Luke Williams at Adams State. 
one of our former students playing basketball down there. Oh, yeah, yeah Adam State. Okay. So, so sorry to go back to San Luis, but so yeah, San just Luis so Valley, we're picturing um, this also huge area. One of the longest continuously farmed regions, like in the post-colonial times of the United States. So you had settlers wow. coming from Santa Fe in the 1630s coming up, utilizing right. all that territory because um, you know there's a ton of milt water coming in from those mountain mm. peaks. Um, it's actually pretty easily irrigated. Um, but Colorado malting's been there for about 100 years now. Oh. When they started homesteading, they found this varietal of rye growing in the valley already. Okay. And Just um, naturally. Yeah. They, they were using it as a, uh, well, semi-naturally. Because, okay. you know, rye is not particularly, you know, it probably escaped from someone else's farm. Got it. But um, they kept cultivating it. They actually okay. um, were utilizing it as a cover crop. Um, they would plant it in the fall and harvest it in the spring. Mm. It's a winter-grown rye, so it actually needs oh. to be frozen over in order to flower. Hmm. And it's a lower yield rye, but um, being planted in the fall and harvested in the spring, all that cold influence on the rye itself um, really mellows out the grain. So okay. when we were starting to work on a rye expression for laws, um, Al was buying some Midwestern grown rye for a little while, some you know easy commodity grain. Yeah. Um, yeah. But shout out to the Midwest. That rye is spicy. Mm. A lot of Midwestern grown rye needs to be uh, cut with corn in order to uh, level out the flavor profile to a point where people actually want to drink it. You know, there's some, like, very few 95 rye, 5 barley mash bills, but for the most part, you know, you've got, you know, the true Midwestern grown ryes are probably 70% rye. All the way, you can go all the way down to 51% rye on a straight rye expression and still call it rye whiskey. Interesting. So, okay, so it's not all so, rye. So the rye is just like the people I mean, of the Midwest. Really? Yeah. <laughs> mm. hey, you got Shots three fired. three fifths <laughs> out of this this crowd, Jamel. Hey, I'm. <laughs> but I am looking at that shirt. <laughs> the rye is also a personal staff favorite. Yeah, so yes. if um, you were to ask us, of course, the unbiased answer is we love all of our children equally. But amongst the staff, the rye is definitely one of our favorites. Tell them. You don't okay, tell so them. The other so what are we what are we tasting so in this rye? In this rye, since it is a winter grown rye, okay. um, you know. A lot of the spice comes on the end instead of the okay. start. Yep. yep. Um, typically, when you're drinking rye whiskey, it comes off as hot. Mm -hmm. So that's the alcohol. The perceptive alcohol comes off as heat, whereas spice is something completely different. Spice is, you know, the pepper, the, pepper. the capsicum, the jalapeno, the vegetal. Um, mm. Often it's hard to delineate those two because rye is perceived as both spicy and hot. This rye is not hot. This rye is spicy. I, I was going to say, like, jalapeno, and mm -hmm. this is going to sound weird as hell, but spaghetti. No, no. Um, savoriness. So there are mm. a lot of rye varietals. Actually, um, there's a separate brand that actually put out this crazy three-chamber, like, old-school single varietal rye uh, expression not too long ago here in Colorado that I thought tasted exactly like pasta. Yeah. Um, Interesting. This That's rye so cool. is... So oh, I, would I would say definitely jalapeno, vegetal, but like your perception of the grain expression in itself as pasta is not wrong. Okay. Um, we like to often refer to this as almost a little like dusty. Mm, I can see that. It's got an earthiness to yep. it that you just, you just don't find very often. Um, I also think it's like heavily perfumed. It's like really good. Like violet. And I also get some sweet notes. So just to slightly interject, when it is all male tasting, of course, when it comes down to just the chemistry of males and females, we taste different. Interesting. So a lot of times women will gravitate towards sweet notes in our rye, whereas mm. you gents might be finding a bit more savory or spicy notes to it. Okay. Um, again, it goes back to there's no right or wrong way to taste a whiskey, and especially when we're sharing tasting notes like that, just for anybody listening, if you happen to pop it at home and you're tasting it and you're like, wow, this is actually really like sweet to me. I'm not getting those spicy notes. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what you're tasting. Um, and we do taste things quite differently. So Shout out to diversity. <laughs> real quick. Diversity. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and inclusivity yeah. because yeah. women in the whiskey world I was just is awesome. that. I was just going to say that. Yeah, Hugo, oh, well, it's about time we had a woman on the show. It <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Um, Cheers. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a good way to... Um, also, just approach whiskey tasting a little bit more objectively. Um, I think this, you know, will rein in both crystals and my perspective. You have 
tasting meals that are available for mm. all things. Coffee, right. beer, whiskey, wine. These are infographic items that you can right. download I've offline. Yep. And um, what they can do for you is if you're going to you, you buy a bottle of whiskey that you really want to get to know, you know, you're going to sit down, you're going to pour yourself a glass. You're not just going to put it in a cocktail immediately. You're not going to, you know, just do what you would normally do. You're, you actually want to give the consideration to the distillers that made something for you. You can sit down and um, you can take a tasting wheel um, and it has several categories. So say you're tasting sweet. Well, what kind of sweet are you tasting? Are you tasting marshmallows? Are you tasting toffee? Are you tasting caramel? Are you tasting just straight sugar? For me, toffee on this one. But um, if you want to expand your vocabulary, that is one of two ways. You can actively train yourself to perceive and to pick apart these different tastes and uh, Mm. these sensory experiences. Um, Highly recommend. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things... In, in kind of the tasting space. So my first encounters with like beverage tasting was when I was 21 and I wanted to be like 41 in terms of my maturity. And like I had a friend, I still a great friend, whose uncle um, has an extensive wine cellar. And uh, he, he was a guy who built DIA and Coors Field. And like he had these bottles down there that were just like exceptional and millions of dollars of stuff. And I remember sitting down there and feeling like so out of my league in terms of tasting. And I almost was like, I want to learn how to do it, but I'm like, I can't afford $48, $110, $35 bottles of wine at that point. So I never really like embraced the fact that there's a lot of different ways to taste these things. And one of the fun parts of this, so my own whiskey kind of journey briefly was during the pandemic, um, my good friend Sean, who we'll meet, he's actually going to meet us afterwards here at the tasting room. He, he was actually our first or second guest on the show. Um, he, he got me into it, and he's a guy who had a couple hundred different bottles of, of whiskey in his basement, still does, and was very generous in his tasting. And it was just so fun to kind of learn that there's so many different ways to express the, the taste, the notes, uh, and it never felt pretentious. Mm-hmm. Like if I could say, this tastes like banana runs, he would be like, yeah, I get a little bit of that in there. And it wasn't so like, um, I don't know what the word was, condescending, that it felt like within the wine space, you were like, ooh, you have to be a master sommelier to be able to taste any of these wines. And, and I feel like the whiskey space is just like, it's such a cool you know, drink that, frankly, I mean, maybe the history of it's not more than, what, a couple hundred years old in the United States with the bourbon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, scotch would go back further, but... It feels like it's more recently that people have really dived into the complexity available without the pretentiousness. And to me, that is what um, keeps me just so, like my, my liquor cabinet, so to speak, my downstairs bar, 98% of my bottles are whiskey because it's just fun. It's fun to experiment. It's fun to taste. It's fun to learn how to taste better. I need to get one of those wheels. Also, in, I was going to say, and, and shout out to Lindy. Just like your mm. your your homeboy's uh, liquor yeah. selection, yeah. she's way out of your league as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just like yeah, I, I I seek things well beyond my grasp, yeah. and sometimes I get it, and sometimes I don't. Yeah. Once again, shout out to Lindy. <laughs> I don't know what she's doing <laughs> with this guy. Um, here in the Renaissance of distillation. Yeah. I, at least in my opinion, I think that there the proliferation of distilleries across the country, across the world. There is a growing appreciation. You know, there was a, ch- a change over in the functionality of what whiskey was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happened over the past several hundred years. But, you know, this used to be a way to concentrate commodity grain in order to prevent it from spoiling and to bring it yes, into yes, yes. A, a realm where it was not, yeah, it wasn't going to just go bad on you. you could right. It's hard work that wasn't going to waste. And now have the opportunity to go several steps further and truly appreciate, you know, just the, the nuances, but the artistry, the artistry, I the was, creativity. I was going to say, I know we're coming towards the close and we're yeah. going to wrap up, but my, my thought there, um, in closing, if you will, about, you know, tighten us back to creativity right. and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. but like that idea that you were just talking about, Simon, about like how like, hey, we, we worked hard and we have all this this grain, it's a commodity and we need to do something with it before mm-hmm. it gets lost. And people were like, well shit, let's get creative and figure out how, how we're gonna what we're gonna do with this. And then now we have this whole industry, this whole 
you know, uh, we have a rye, we have the, the four grain, you have your, your, your single grain, and all just all these different things that people can put into uh, a spirit, right, that actually, and in my experience, brings people together as a, something that you can enjoy with somebody else and, mm-hmm. and, and take it too far and have a great night, <laughs> yeah. or still have a good night and not take it too far or whatever, but right. just like being able to enjoy something that is actually the, the fruit of somebody else's labor is, is something that I think I appreciate, and also is the fact that it's like, creativity in in its purest form. That was something I wanted to touch on, too, is just that, to your point, if you ever come across someone who has an extensive, quote-unquote, whiskey library or collection, Mm -hmm. or it doesn't matter, maybe they just have two or three bottles that are really cool and special, there's a rule that comes with drinking whiskey. What is it? And it it comes with, all right, if I'm going to have you over, and I will open any bottle for you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's unopened, if it's whatever. Whiskey is meant to be shared. Mm. It is one of those mm. spirits where this tastes better the more we converse. Yep. The more we talk about the history of it, the more we talk about our process for it. It is a spirit that's meant to be shared and experienced. Mm. And if you meet somebody who has one of those whiskey collections, nine times out of ten, it will shock you because they'll be like, go pick something out. Mm. What is something you want to try? What's something you've never had? And I've done it with people, and I've had people do it for me. So it's a mm. shared experience that I've had on both sides yep. where I've almost been like overwhelmed with, like, oh, my God, I'm in front of this whiskey collection, and there are bottles here that I know I could never afford. Right. I know I could never pop open for other people, but here I am in this situation where this person's willing to open this for me to share and try. And in the whiskey world, there are a lot of collectors, right? And mm. there's a lot of people that are hanging on to those bottles. But if there's one takeaway that I can tell anybody on this podcast, if you have a very special bottle and you're sitting on it, open it. Open the it. next time you have somebody over, share it with them. Open that bottle. Don't let it sit because you're mm. sitting in a rack house where there's 4,000 barrels aging and we're not the only one. So there's always good whiskey aging somewhere. Don't sit on that bottle Use it as a chance to have a shared experience with other people because I think that's right the most beautiful part of this right spirit yeah. is there's a history to it, there's a conversation to it, and it's meant to be shared. Right. Nice. Yeah, right on. Yeah, gra- whiskey is gratitude. I think it's a, it's a language that, um, I mean, frankly, for me, it deepened a friendship with uh, a friend who I had for a long time, but it was a connector, it was an exploration space, it was a hobby, and... Um, I agree. So crack that next uh, unopened bottle with your friends, sharing that experience. You know, we don't know how many more of these we get. So, you know, make the most of it. Um, Those are great. You know, here's kind of my last maybe extension question. And uh, then I think we can kind of put season one to uh, a a great gracious end. But I think the question is, you take it however way you want. Um, it It may go beyond whiskey. It may be part of it for you. But um, I think, how would you, for, for listeners on the show, I think there's a lot of passion, you know, Simon, Crystal, both of you have found yourself in a, in a place where it's very clear to me that you love what it is that you do. What advice would you have um, for listeners, um, for viewers? H- how do you, like, recommend exploring that creativity? Like, how do you recommend exploring and pursuing those passions kind of reflecting on the story that brought you here, what advice would you have when it comes to kind of living that out? Um, Jamie, I know that camera just came back on, and so do you want me to repeat that, maybe repeat that question? You got that one there? Okay, cool. All right, right on. So yeah, each of us can go, what advice do we have for folks out there to explore their creative side? What advice do we have to kind of unleash that creativity and explore those passions? Simon, do you want to go ahead and start? Sure. Um I never planned to be here. I never planned to be in sales. I never planned to be part of the whiskey world. Um, Mm. Keep yourself open to new experiences. And um, if you see an opportunity to grow and try something new, uh, go for it. Mm. It, You know, you never know what you're going to get. And um, there are some really amazing places to be and things to do that uh, you you may not even have, like, conceptualized. So Mm. go for it. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Yeah. Uh, Crystal, how about you? 
Yeah. Um, first of all, take a page out of Alan Law's book and pour yourself something nice while you're contemplating these questions. Mm. Um, and of course, if what you're drinking ends up leading you to where you should be, then that's the perfect circumstance. Um, but I do think that taking a moment of reflection, and for me, of course, that's best done with a glass of something delicious in front of me, because especially when I'm tasting something that I know people spent a lot of time to make, it's going to give me a moment to reflect on that. So not only think about, okay, I poured myself a really nice bourbon or a really nice scotch, and I'm sitting here asking myself the existential questions in life, but it also kind of is a full circle moment because somebody out there spent a lot of time making what's in my glass for me to have mm. a moment to reflect on that. And so, of course, just being mindfulness and however which way you can find space to be mindfulness, I think that's the best advice I can give for anyone trying to think about, you know, their creativity and like what will lead them down that path. Because when you can become more mindful, even for just a moment, it's going to spark that creativity for you or highlight something for you that you can yeah. find that creativity in. That's awesome. And I think, you know, just a brief reflection on that. I think um, if, if, yeah, the mindfulness piece, the, the pausing and the thinking, and I think we live in such a, a high-paced, fast-paced world that it's often like, all right, what's next, what's next, what's next? And for me, my mantra, as best I can follow for this year, has been what's now, mm -hmm. what's now. And so I appreciate, you know, sharing that. Thanks, Crystal. Yeah. And Jamel, how about for you? Um, for me, I, I really enjoy what Simon was saying about uh, basically try everything, right? Um, that's how I got to do snowboarding with Hugo. Uh, that's how I got off of MGD and actually uh, got into a little bit of the beers and uh, all, the, all the different types of shit that Jamie has tricked me into doing. Um, <laughs> but no, I think uh, one of the things for me in order to explore your creativity, I think, is to, to acknowledge or at least think about where you come from. Right, mm. um, thinking about what it took for you to get to where you are, um, and and to to uh, Crystal's point, kind of like the people's shoulders who you're standing on, and and the work that went into to somebody creating the spirit, and and the work that it took for people that came before you to get to where you are, and to think about that, and then just kind of like reflect on that, and think about like being creative in a sense that is honoring to the the things or the people that came before you. Mm. And, and family, and I think uh, for me, and we've talked about this on several other podcasts about where we come from and how, how it influences the person that you are today mm. is very important to me. Mm. So thinking about that and the people who came before you and to be able to, to, to lean on that in order to be a guide to where you should be going forward. Right on, man. Thank you. Um, as is typical with my podcast is I write all the questions and I give them zero thought until someone else answers them. So I, I think I'm still... And and to kind of Simon's piece, like be open, you know, and so I've, I've been open to kind of hearing what each of you said. And and I, I was watching this movie, uh, the, the Maestro, last night with Bradley Cooper, which, um, by the way, unbelievable mu movie. Um, it's It was beautiful. It was incredibly well filmed, but it was about um, Leonard Bernstein, who is the producer, composer, um, who wrote, you know, many incredible music numbers. And... and I think he talked about like the only way to really be creative is to kind of be truly free and to, you know to seek yourself um, you know to seek within yourself the ability to express your creativity when you feel free from constraint and free from you know limits and I think the mindfulness piece the openness to explore the willingness to really reflect on who you've been where you've come from are all ways to kind of open up creativity um, because so much of our life we feel like we're, we're following a certain set of parameters or kind of being confined to what is either expected of us or what would be good judgment or what would be judicious. Judith, that's a tough one. And judicious. judicious? Have you been drinking? Yeah, <laughs> judicious. <laughs> but if, um, you know, we, we're, we limit ourselves sometimes to kind of the creative space, and I think that um, for me, my advice to my own self, and, you know, this is both a little bit of self-healing as well as, like, opportunities for listeners to think about, is, you know, you know look to, to not set limits on yourself, to say yes to more. Um, in fact, maybe try not to say no to many, to many things or any things um, and be open to those opportunities to really, you know, set yourself free and explore new opportunities. And 
I think that's what brought laws to existence. I think it's what brought all of us to this place in some ways. And so I just want to share uh, a gratitude to Simon, to Crystal, Jamel, Jamie, uh, who's off mic tonight, but for helping us produce this as he explores his own passions as well. Um, so thank you to everyone. Um, a lot of gratitude. Cheers to the end of season one of the Campfire Conversation, to our season finale, and uh, thanks to, to Laws for hosting today. And, um, you know, cheers. Cheers. Uh, uh, tov. And we do have tours availability for anyone who yes. wants to come down to the tasting room and mm-hmm. learn more about not only Laws Whiskey, but we'll teach you about whiskey in general. Yes. Um, so that is something. It's all available on the website. You can find it if you just visit lawswhiskeyhouse.com. So shameless plug there for no, no no shame no shame is <laughs> La- yeah. lawswhiskeyhouse.com and also the um tasting room is the location of the tasting yep. room is uh 1420 south acoma street in yep. denver colorado so yeah. just south of downtown check Four- them out seriously great people acoma. Uh, 1420 south acoma street south yeah. acoma so um florida yeah check them out guys uh for those who are listening um thank you for listening and uh, look forward to kicking off season two very soon cheers cheers, cheers guys.